first, would you turn in a Bible to Romans chapter 12. We are continuing our little fall series here called The Ordinary, Extraordinary Church. And I'd like to pray for God's help before we open God's Word and Emily reads it to us. Holy Spirit, would you help us now? Open the eyes of our hearts to behold wondrous things out of your law. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your word, to, to be met by you. So would you speak again through what you have spoken in your inspired, infallible word, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. Perhaps it's because I am officially middle-aged at 51 that an article caught my attention talking about how a, a 19th century philosopher addressed in ways what we call a midlife crisis. So I was interested. <laughs> the article was quoting the philosopher saying that how you, you set goals in life and perhaps you achieve them. And then the philosopher said, then your pursuit is over. <laughs> you are now aimless <laughs> and without purpose if you achieve your goals. And he said, if you set goals and you fail to achieve them, then you're frustrated and despairing. So essentially, he said, it's a lose-lose proposition. <laughs> it's very pessimistic. He said, life, life swings like a pendulum to and fro between pain and boredom. Doesn't that build you up? Life swings between meaningless pain and boredom. He said, we are haunted by the, the hollowness of everyday life. It just feels hollow to us. Do you feel like that sometimes? Maybe this week or this morning? Life, life feels hollow, a bit meaningless at, at any age, not just middle age. You can experience that. You begin to identify with the Beatles song, Nowhere Man, living in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans, for nobody. Can you identify? Feel like a nowhere man or woman in a nowhere land making nowhere plans. We can all find ourselves in that situation. So what's the solution? What's What's the answer, at least in part? Well, one answer, I would submit, one answer is seeing, being reminded of God-given purpose. God-given purpose. And what we're going to see is that God gives great purpose to individual lives and to churches. In fact, we're going to cover in the coming weeks three main purposes God gives to us 
You might say one is an upward purpose of ministry to God in worship. One is an inward purpose in ministry to each other in discipleship. One is an outward purpose in ministry to this world through evangelism, outreach, and mercy. And today we want to talk about that upward purpose. What we're calling being a a doxological people. That just means being a people who are oriented upwardly to the glory of God. You see, if you get get this doxological purpose, it can eradicate some of that feeling of life is hollow or meaningless right now. If you get this doxological purpose, you won't feel like a pendulum swinging between meaningless pain and meaningless boredom. If you get this purpose of praise, you won't feel like a nowhere man or a nowhere woman making nowhere plans for nobody. Friends, we want to be, we need to be a doxological people, a people all about the glory of God. And today I want to see two aspects of that, two critical crucial aspects of being an upward people. Here's the first. First, we need to see and realize that the Christian life is a life of worship. The Christian life is a life of worship. I'm only going to hit on verse 1 here of the passage Emily read, but look at verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, I urge you, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now you have to realize with that word, therefore, we are interrupting the book of Romans. We are jumping in to the stream of thought in the book of Romans. So you should ask, what are these mercies of God? Well, it's the mercies he's been talking about for 11 chapters. Mercies like propitiation, that Jesus Christ on the cross bore the full fury of God's wrath, turning God's wrath into God's favor for all who believe, Romans 3. Mercies like justification, that we are declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone, Romans 4. Mercies like eternal life through the obedience of Jesus Christ, Romans 5. Mercies like newness of life in Christ because we are joined to the resurrected Jesus, Romans 6. Mercies like the love of God and God working all things together for your good, transforming your life and ensuring that nothing can separate you from His love, Romans 8. Mercy's like all of this is because He sovereignly chose or set His love upon you, Romans 9 through 11. So now, in light of all those great mercies, God says to us, the rest of verse 1, present your body. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God because of Jesus, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see the upward purpose right there in that verse? You can't miss it, can you? Here's your spiritual or rational or reasonable worship. You see what he's doing in this verse? The apostle He's taking the the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament system and he's saying, you who are in Christ, 
Now you are that sacrifice, living that out every day. In other words, Jesus has fulfilled this whole sacrificial system on your behalf. So you don't worship God with a lamb or a bull. You worship with your whole body. And I think he means by that with all that you are. With the entirety of your being. Your whole person. Present your bodies, the entirety of your being as a, as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice sacrifice. That's a twist, isn't it? Because sacrifices were living things that were killed because sin requires a death penalty. But for those who have trusted Jesus, our lives are to be lived as living sacrifices, not in a temple, but in everyday life. 24-7, 365 days a year. It's a very important purpose or reality. And you see it in a number of places in the New Testament. For instance, you see this in Hebrews chapter 13, where we're told that words that acknowledge His name are a sacrifice of praise. It goes on to say, doing good and sharing what you have are sacrifices pleasing to God. They're worship. Or Philippians 4, financial giving is described in the language of worship. Quote, a fragrant offering and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Or Colossians 3. Colossians 3 describes the, the work, the labors of bondservants or slaves as service to Christ. The apostle says you are serving the Lord Christ. Your work, your vocation, it's all about worship. Romans 15, Paul describes his own missionary efforts as worship, he calls it a, the priestly service of the gospel of God. So we find this different places, but here in Romans 12, it's just all-encompassing, isn't it? <laughs> all of life for the Christian is doxological, an expression of worship. As D.A. Carson, scholar D.A. Carson puts it, worship, worship becomes the category under which we order everything in our lives. I think that's helpful. In light of this verse, worship becomes the category under which we organize everything in our lives. Worship becomes the category under which we order our families. If you're married, if you have children, all of that is to be organized under the category of Worship, your parenting, your marriage, it's Godward in its purpose. Worship becomes the category into which we order our finances, our saving, our spending, our giving. It's all organized under this overarching theme of God's glory. Worship. Worship becomes the category into which we organize our work, like I mentioned, our schooling, if you're a student. Our words, our, our driving. This was convicting to me this week as I had prepared this. I thought, maybe I should take driving out. <laughs> but I left it in for my own sake. Worship is the category into which everything else is covered from Romans 12 through Romans 15. And in fact, we could look at the Scripture that says whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, whatever we do, do all how? For the glory 
of God. All of life for the believer in Jesus is to be doxological. It's worship. Now I realize though, I realize that could feel discouraging right now for you. In fact, you could feel a little bit condemned by that. Because you might be thinking at this moment, man, there are so many ways in my life I am not worshiping God through my life. And certainly, if the Spirit is convicting you, that's a gift from God to respond to. But, but be careful you're not missing the engine that drives worship in this verse that we saw earlier. Therefore, by the mercies of God, don't forget that part. Don't forget chapters 1 through 11. The apostle doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to make sure you're aware of mercies from God in Jesus that made you his own, that have already adopted you as his child, that have loved you and declared you righteous and made you eternally and spiritually secure in Jesus. He's saying in view of all those mercies that make you spiritually, eternally secure in response to all of those mercies now, don't be condemned. Live your life as worship. In other words, see how those great mercies fill your life with great purpose. See how those mind-blowing mercies that Jesus purchased for us fill your life and mine with great purpose because worship is no longer confined to a little corner of life. Worship for you is not confined to 90 minutes in La Mesa Community Center. Now everything you do, every waking moment, from when you get up to when you go to sleep, is about worship. And in fact, you could certainly say and should say, while you sleep, you are glorifying God. Because you are sleeping as a statement to say, I am not God, you are God, I need to sleep. So let's just go, the entirety of your day is stuffed full of purpose. The purpose of praise. But I need to add here, I need to add to make sure we're aware, we can fulfill this purpose and enjoy this purpose only in and through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've yet to trust in Jesus, thank you for being here. You're in the right place. Please don't misunderstand. I just want to clarify something. We, we cannot just walk up to God and, and worship on our own, left to ourselves as we are. God is holy and we have rebelled against Him. He is holy, we are not. So we need what's called a mediator. We need, a, we need a go-between. We need someone who can bridge the gap between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We can only truly worship God through Him. There's a great scene, I love this scene, in John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters a, a Samaritan woman. And the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans did not like the Jewish people. Jesus meets this despised Samaritan and he says basically, I've got living water for you. And she says, buddy, you've got no bucket. <laughs> he says basically, well, I know a few things about you. And he exposes as the great soul hunter, 
He exposes her sinful present and sinful past, and she wisely changes the topic and says, well, what about the local worship controversy? You Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. We Samaritans worship over here at this mountain. Jesus says this, the time is coming and is now come. In other words, now with my coming, things have changed. The true worshipers, he said, worship the Father in spirit and truth. His point is essentially, true worship happens now not in a certain place, but through a certain person, Jesus Christ. To become a true worshiper of God, to enjoy this doxological purpose for your life, come to Jesus. Turn from going your own way. Come to the Savior we've been singing about and celebrating. He wants to receive you, forgive you, and make you his own. Turn to him. Trust in what he's done. And then you too will know that the Christian life, the Christian life is a life of worship. But this little series is about the church and the purposes God has given to churches. So how does this relate to our lives together? Because it does. It does. First of all, life is about worship, all of life. But secondly, we should see this, that a life of worship must include what's called gathered worship, congregational worship. A life of worship really should include, must include, I would say, gathered worship. You see, it's possible to take what I just said, what Romans 12.1 says, about all of life worship, and distort it. Some have said today, well, look, you can just have church anywhere. You can have church anywhere on a Sunday morning on the golf course. If you are golfing, I'm not making this up, if you are golfing with a friend, a fellow believer in Jesus, and Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'm there. So you're having church. It's the church of the first tee. And I think what's meant by that is the church is made up of people. And I would say, yes, of course. But it is is a gathered people. That's what the word church means. It means, it's really a rather ordinary word. It means assembly or, or gathering. But used in this way, it's about God's gathered people in Jesus Christ. So what should God's gathered people do on a regular basis? They should gather. (laughs) That's right. They should gather in real space and time, like you're doing right now. Now, I think the entire book of Leviticus, you could read that. I think it establishes this principle, God's people gathering for very specific expressions of worship. We could look at Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is kind of a call to worship. In the Old Testament, it says this. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. You hear that? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's a a call to worship, to come gather and praise God together. But then people ask, well, if gathered worship was so important, then... Is it still important now? 
with the coming of Jesus? Is this gathering for worship upwardly, is this still important today? Well, think about the early church, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we read, on the first day of the week, that Sunday, when Jesus rose, notice, when we were gathered together. Why? Well, to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged, notice, he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, this is the the earliest reference we have to Christians gathering on Sundays, the first day of the week, because Jesus rose on that day. And notice what they're doing. They are breaking bread, probably a reference to a larger meal they shared, which would have included the Lord's Supper. And they're assembled for a lengthy time of preaching from God's Word, all the way until midnight. You don't have any plans today, do you? Thank you. Just tell the nursery workers. Similarly, the Apostle Paul directs the church in the city of Corinth to give on the first day of the week. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, Sunday, each of you, when you're gathered, each of you is to put aside something, put something aside, to store it up as he may prosper. Put some money aside for the offering I'm taking. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 through 14, all of those chapters are essentially apostolic direction for gathered worship. Now, the Corinthians were creative in their gathered worship, but you have all those chapters speaking to the fact that what we do as we gather is very important. It's to be a critical part of a life of worship. Hebrews 10, for these persecuted Christians, they heard the following, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice, not neglecting to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together, he said, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You might say, Tab, that, that sounds like it's a horizontal purpose. And you're right. We actually gather for two purposes. One horizontal, one vertical. We gather to edify each other, build each other up, and to worship and praise God. You see this in places like Ephesians chapter 5, where we sing to one another and we sing to the Lord. So we gather for horizontal edification and vertical exaltation, you might say, to worship. The point is, the point is to be a doxological people, to fulfill this upward purpose God has given. We live lives of worship and we gather for worship. We live lives of worship and we gather for worship. I like how Kent Hughes has put this. He captures this relationship helpfully. He says, while all of life is worship, while all of life is worship, gathered worship with the body of Christ is the heart of a life of worship. Gathered worship with the body of Christ is the heart of a life of worship. In other words, we need both. We need both. Now let's get really practical then. I wanted to take this opportunity, we wanted to do so as, as elders, to, to take you into how we've been thinking, trying to think more intentionally about this 90 minutes plus together. And that's the the genesis of this handout you have. 
I'm not going to read this in its entirety. Don't be alarmed. But I wanted to give this to you. We want you to have this. You can read over later. But I'd like to skim some of the highlights while you've got it in your hand. The idea is, again, how are we seeking to be more intentional in in what you could call our, our liturgy, which just means our pattern for worship, our pattern for gathered praise. See, the question is not, do you have a liturgy? Are you a, a, a liturgical church? Every church has a liturgy, a pattern. Every church has a pattern for their worship. The question we've been asking is, how intentional is our pattern for worship? So, you see there the question, the second question in bold. How should we intentionally shape our liturgy, our pattern? And we talk about there how the first question in how we worship is not what do we want to do? The first question is what does God want us to do? That, that makes sense, doesn't it? The Creator tells the creature how to worship, not, not the other way around. We want God's Word, God's revelation, shaping what we do together in particular. And so it's been summed up nicely this way. In our services, we want to, to sing the Bible or biblical truths, theological truths. Sing the Bible, read the Bible, pray the Bible, preach the Bible, and see the Bible in the visible words of the sacraments, as Augustine, the church father, put it. Sing the Bible, biblical truths, theological truths from the Bible. Sing it, read it, pray it, preach it, see it. You're on good, solid ground for worshiping the Creator that way, aren't you? And then you've got a list of ways the New Testament gives some examples of that. I'm not going to go into all that. On the next page, we mention how these things happen in a particular cultural context. And that context, in that context, we should be intelligible I think an implication of that is we love, we love both new, Godward, biblically rich songs like we sang, and we love great old hymns as well. We love singing both. We also talk about how we have a theological heritage that helps us be more intentional. But skip down to the next question. What about spontaneous elements in gathered worship? What about spontaneity? Because you might say, Tab, Tab, there are spontaneous elements you find, like in 1 Corinthians 14, and you're right. There we find the apostle addressing and really encouraging and encouraging that church, urging them to pursue what he calls prophecy or spontaneous things God brings to mind spontaneously for the purpose of, in verse 3, speaking to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. That's not some kind of authoritative thing added to your Bible. Never do that. That's just something God brings to mind for other people's upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. We're glad for that. God says in other places, these elements are not to be despised, but evaluated, benefited from. So our practice is to have a, a ministry microphone in the front here. It's overseen by a pastor, usually me down front. If God brings something spontaneously to mind for you or maybe in your morning devotional time or what have you, and you think it might be for the upbuilding, consolation, encouragement of the body as we gather, you bring it down to the pastor down front and we'll talk about it. 
very, very likely we say, hey, that sounds edifying. That sounds encouraging. Why don't you share that? We're glad for that. Then the question I ask is the next question. Okay, but how do structure and spontaneity relate in our gathered worship? Because if you're like me, they can feel antithetical. They can feel like opposites to each other. But they're not. As you think about it, they're really not. It's better to think of structure, like we're laying out structure, as the context in which the spontaneous can best happen. That way, in an orderly kind of pattern or liturgy, in an orderly liturgy, spontaneity happens in an orderly and edifying manner. I like to think of the structure, the liturgy, a well-thought-out liturgy as the, the steel beams of the building. Steel beams holding things up. And in that helpful context and helpful structure, the Holy Spirit meets us in all kinds of ways. So with all of that, let me walk through some of the main elements of our structure, our pattern, our liturgy. We have developed over the years here this practice of having a call to worship. And that call to worship there is a reminder that God invites us by His grace to come, just like we reminded ourselves this morning. We don't come to work ourselves up, to earn something. We come at God's gracious invitation through Jesus. We sing songs, songs of praise and thanksgiving, and that's very important. Singing, you know, singing helps us remember and respond to truth. And that means what we sing and how we sing are important. What we sing matters to us a lot. And so our, our worship leaders, they spend a lot of time, God bless them, during the week thinking about what songs would be helpful to us, where there's good content to which we can respond through song. We're so grateful for their hard work. But I want to also add, it's important how we sing. It's important as well. I remember going to a conference years and years ago in the Chicago area. Sung and I went on a kind of a date night because J.I. Packer was speaking. If you know who J.I. Packer is, this wonderful theologian. And this ministry was hosting Dr. Packer. And it was a very formal setting, which just wasn't my style, to be honest with you. And I think I was having a bad attitude. Everyone was in suits and ties, at least on stage. Everyone has suit and tie, singing out of a hymnal, which, which is fine. But again, I was having a bad attitude. <laughs> and thinking, well, this is not really, not really passionate praise through song. And then I saw the leader of this ministry, a man named John Armstrong, singing in his full suit, holding his hymnal. And he was singing so strenuously, his face was beat red. I was concerned for him at first. I thought, this guy's going to have like a heart attack up here. But I realized what was happening. He was so engaging with the truth, so engaging passionately, so wanting to worship God through song that everything in his being was striving to praise the Lord. And in that moment, passionate singing was redefined for me. And I realized it's not about whether you have jeans on or a three-piece suit. It's not about whether you're using a projector and a screen or a hymnal. It's really not even about if your hands are raised or not raised, if you clapped or didn't clap. It's about, friends, engaging heart and mind 
with the truth of God's Word and responding to God in praise. What we sing and how we sing. That's what matters as we sing. Corporate confession then we're trying to work in more regularly next. An assurance of pardon. What I like about that is it helps us keep keep the good news from becoming abstract. What happens over time is the gospel, the good news, gets abstract for you. It's something you know about, you forget that you need. A brief time of corporate confession says, I need Jesus and I have him by faith. And you rejoice. We're seeking to once a month recite an historic creed together. Typically the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed because these are very important summations that have been passed down in the church for centuries. We are seeking to accent a little more than a pastoral prayer, as you see there, where one of our elders will lead us in a prayer for a particular need. The nations, for our nation, for our church, for our own lives. Might be relatively brief, might be a few minutes or so. It's a good time to draw near together to God. And prior to the sermon, we like to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help us understand His Word. And then, what we're doing now, a sermon, a time to be fed by God's Word. But I want to accent here, it's also worship. Friends, worship hasn't ended just because the singing ended. This is to be an expression of worship right now. Are you aware of that? I love the story that Mark Dever tells of, of lecturing in England. And he mentioned this. He said, have you seen these Elizabethan period churches, churches of the, from the period where Queen Elizabeth was queen, <laughs> where they have a, a wrought iron hook in the front down by the pulpit? Have you seen those, he asked. He said they, are to, they were to hold, rather, the hourglass. Congregations would give to their pastors hourglasses as a gift, and they would put the hourglass there, and the congregation would give them one or two turns of the hourglass. That means a two- to three-hour sermon. And one of those in the congregation gasped audibly and said, if they preach for three hours, how do they have time for worship? And Dr. Dever calmly responded, you need to understand, these people viewed the proclamation of God's word as the culmination of the service, the, the apex. He said some could still remember the smell of burning flesh, of Protestant martyrs who died to have the Bible in their own language. So they took this time as a very important time to hear from God and engage with God. This is worship, friends, as well. Now, I'm not advocating for a three-hour sermon, but let us engage with God even now. The Lord's Supper, communion, we took a whole sermon on last week. We want word and sacrament to stay together and mark our time. Songs of praise, a benediction, a prayer of blessing at the end. And what's not on here also would be our giving. As I mentioned earlier, that also is worship. The offering box, or you give online to the website, or I have my bank send a check to the church. 
P.O. box. Regardless, that's a time of praise. We're trying to be, I hope you're seeing, trying to be more intentional, more thoughtful about this very important time of gathered praise. But, you might ask, Tab, can't such a structure become empty or rote? That's a good question. And I would say yes. Yes, it is possible for any structure to become rote. Remember, every church, friends, every church has a liturgy, a pattern. It's possible for any pattern to become empty, meaningless. The key to protecting against that is what we talked about earlier, hearts and minds engaging with God, engaging with God's truth, engaging with the truth of God's gospel. Think about it. You might, you might watch a football game later on today. Your favorite team is on, and they score a touchdown. And you jump up, you're so glad. Maybe, maybe you're eating your favorite food, and you, you love this favorite food. You are just speaking the praises of this bowl of nachos. Anything we enjoy like that, we, we praise. I remember going to a Chicago White Sox playoff game the year they won the World Series, and 60,000 strangers going nuts because the Chicago White Sox won a game. Now, I'm not against that. I'm just asking by way of comparison, should we not engage all the more with the glories of God, the truth of His gospel, and what He's accomplished in Jesus Christ? Any structure is vulnerable, but we must protect against that by engaging hearts and minds, thinking and passions, with who God is and what He has done. So let me wrap this up. Why does all this matter? Why does all this matter? Why does, why does a life of worship and inclusive in that gathered worship, why does that really matter? Well, most of all, because God matters, like we just talked about. God matters. Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord... The glory to His name. God is worthy. So it is right and good to praise Him. We were created and redeemed for that purpose. But, but this matters also because it fills your life with God-given purpose, like we talked about. God-given purpose. Life is not that pendulum swinging between meaningless pain and boredom. Life is not hollow. Life is not needing to be a nowhere man making nowhere plans for nobody. You have great meaning and great purpose from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed and the whole time you're asleep because it's all about God and His glory being a doxological person. And this matters as well because gathering like this then has great purpose too. Gathering like this has great purpose too. We need both. I hope you're catching that. We need both. We need to think about a life of worship, be mindful of that, and in that context, value and appreciate gathering for worship. I like how Dr. Ligon Duncan has put it. 
He said, worship in all of life prepares you for gathered worship. And gathered worship prepares you to worship in all of life. That's a helpful takeaway. Worship in all of life prepares you for what you're doing right now. And what you're doing right now prepares you for what's up ahead this coming week. Dr. Duncan tells of how the Puritans, those who were seeking to purify the Church of England a few centuries ago, they called Sunday the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. Apparently, English towns had one day of a week which was called the market day. You didn't have Costco seven days a week open. You had one day a week where you got goods for your rest of your week. You got your vegetables or whatever they ate back then. I guess maybe potatoes. You had one market day in an English town. They called Sunday the market day of the soul. When you gather and get goods, as it were, for your soul, your soul is built up for the rest of the week. So may I appeal to you? May I encourage you? Continue prioritizing this time. I want you to see life as a life of worship. But don't forget how valuable, friends, how unique the market day of the soul is. In Southern California, we have so many options. You could go skiing and surfing the same day. Beautiful weather, 364 and a half days a year. But please don't fail to realize how vital for your soul this 90 minutes is. Come eager. Come expectant. Come ready to engage with God, to praise Him and be edified yourself. Because one day, we will gather with that heavenly throng and sing with a loud voice, as it says in Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, we get a taste of that day, a little taste as we gather today. And so we want to close with worthy is the Lamb resonating in our hearts and minds as we take the Lord's Supper. Would the ushers prepare to serve us and the music team please come?